And these are the words of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we are so grateful for the opportunity, Lord, to uh, study your word. Father, we don't take it lightly that the creator of the universe has spoken to us. God, you are not a God who hides yourself. You are a loving father who desires to reveal your heart to your children. And we are so grateful for that. And so, Father, I ask as we dig into this this passage of scripture, Lord, I pray that you would reveal more of yourself, that you would reveal your heart. And Lord Jesus, we are thankful that we get to know you a little bit better through this passage. And so we just ask that you would do these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might be wondering why I have this picture up here. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but uh, so this is the, the last message, like I was saying. And so I don't know if you guys remember, but John chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the New Testament. So we broke it up into two, into kind of two bite-sized pieces, if you will. Um, so we did 1 through 12 this last week, and then we're doing 13 through 26 this week. Um, and then we talked about how this is sometimes called the high priestly prayer, which uh, the reason that it's called that is because it mimics uh, very much so uh, Jesus being the ultimate high priest. This prayer actually mimics the prayer of the high priest in the Old Testament who would pray first for himself and then for his family and his fellow priests, and then he would pray for the whole congregation of Israel. And if you notice in this, in this chapter, Jesus actually does that. In verses 1 to 5, he prays uh, for himself, and then 6 through 19, he focuses on uh, the apostles and those whom the Father had given to him. And then in verse 20, he actually turns his, his focus on you guys, on us. And I was just floored by that the first time I saw that, like realizing that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, knowing all that was about to take place, that he was about to bear the very wrath of God against my sins and against the sins of all of his people, knowing that he would experience what no human being ever wants to experience, which is the anger of God. Knowing that he took time to pray, not only for his disciples, but also for us, like it says in verse 20, who would believe through their word, which is what we have here in the New Testament. We have the word of the apostles, and we believe that word if we are Christians. And so that is just an amazing, amazing thought that Jesus took time, knowing all that was about to take place, that he began to pray for you and I and for others. Just such an amazing testimony to how Jesus is the, the epitome of, like love, of love focused outward instead of focused on himself. So, man, I love Jesus. Um, <laughs> um, so all of that is the, the context, but um, the main theme for this, this message is this. Um, and if you hear nothing else, just take this home. And it's this, is that disciples are supposed to be different than the world. Disciples are supposed to be different than the world. Now, as you look at this picture, I will, uh, I'll point out here. Um, so this is a picture on uh, Lindsay and I. This is our engagement dinner with my family. 
Okay. Uh, this is my oldest brother, Brad. That's his wife, Ashley. This is uh, the middle child, Jake, the, the one just a couple of years older than me. And that's his wife. Um, oh, I'm totally blanking on her name right now. <laughs> Help me out, babe. <laughs> Alyssa. Alyssa, there we go. Thank you. I hope she never listens to this recording. <laughs> um, so the reason that I bring this Next up Christmas is I'm, I'm illustrating. I'm illustrating the idea of difference. Okay. Now you'll notice bald, bald, lots of hair. And so the reason that I bring this up is. G Jake kind of stands out amongst the, the Sheridan men in the family. My father is also bald as a cue ball, uh, just, like, just like me and uh, my oldest brother. And so if you look at the Sheridan men, there's one that, that stands out. He's a little bit different. He's got a luscious flowing locks, right? Um, there's some jealousy happening here uh, right now. <laughs> but I, I share this because as you look at that picture, even though Jake... There, he's, he's like us. He even kind of looks like Brad and I a little bit. There, there's a difference there, right? Um, and it's just kind of a silly way of, of sharing that w what Jesus is, is talking about in this passage is that the disciples, and it kind of continues this theme that we've been talking about, but the disciples are different than the world. And the reason, one of the reasons that we've already talked about is that the disciples are different because they've been chosen by the Father and gifted to the Son. But now our question is, is how are they different? How, how are we and how were the apostles, how are they different than the world, right? And so there's three differences that we're going to pull out from this passage uh, that mark uh, a disciple of Jesus, okay? And so the first difference is this, is that a disciple is different than the world in that he or she is marked by the joy of Jesus. It's different in that they are marked by the joy of Jesus. The second way that disciples are different than the world is that they are changed by the word of Jesus. They're changed by the word of Jesus. And thirdly, the way that disciples are different than the world is that they are united together to point the world to Jesus. You'll notice there was this theme of unity throughout this passage, but it's always followed by this, so that the world may know that you sent me, right? So there's this Jesus prays for unity, but with the specific purpose of pointing the world to himself and to his saving work. So, marked by the joy of Jesus, changed by the word of Jesus, and united to point the world to Jesus. Let's start by looking at verse 13, where it says this. It says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, isn't that interesting? So Jesus, he's in the midst of praying, he's speaking with the Father, and he says, Father, I'm coming to you with a specific prayer request, and I have spoken these things previously, uh, meaning referring to Jesus' teaching, and so what's the end goal of the prayer and the preaching? 
that the joy of Jesus would be fulfilled in the lives of the disciples. Now, isn't that interesting? Because oftentimes we, at least for me, my my gut reaction is when I hear Jesus wants you to be happy or Jesus wants you to be joyful, I think, heresy. You are a prosperity gospel preacher and I will never listen to another word that comes out of your mouth, right? But Jesus here in in this moment, he says that, The reason, he says, Father, I'm coming to you and I'm asking that my joy would be in the disciples. And in fact, I've spoken, I've taught, I've lived with, I've discipled these these men so that my joy may be in them. And so the, the obvious question is, what sort of joy is Jesus talking about? Well, if we go back to John 15, and even going back to John 4, Jesus, right after, he, uh, right after he speaks with the woman at the well, the disciples had left and they were going to get some food and stuff and they come back and uh, Jesus is, uh, they're, they're like, Jesus, you need to eat something, right? This is a loose paraphrase because I can't remember exactly how the conversation goes. Um, but they're like, Jesus, you need to eat. And then he's like, I have food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of my Father. In other words, that which satisfies, that which brings joy to Jesus is to do the will of the Father. And what's interesting is if you look at John 15, Jesus actually says something similar. And he, when he teaches the disciples that um, he says, uh, he basically starts teaching them to obey, right? He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. But then there's this phrase in 15 verse 11 where he says, I say all these things, I'm telling you that you should obey because I want you to be full of joy. I want you to be full of joy. And that's interesting because I think normally, at least, I don't know about you, but me, like I think God wants, wants me to be holy but not necessarily happy, Right? And so there's, oftentimes we kind of pit those two things against each other, like in order to live a holy life, we've got to be miserable, which is just not true. What God knows and what Jesus, uh, being the son of God, what he knows and what he's teaching us in this passage is that if you want to be truly happy, you must live a life that is holy. Because if you live a life that is holy, you're living the way that God designed you to live. I've used this illustration before, but... If, if you imagine like someone uh, who had, had no idea what an iPhone is, right? And they use it to squash uh, flies, right? They're just like, bam, bam, just squashing flies. If they don't know what the purpose of the iPhone is, they might conclude that this iPhone is a wonderful fly swatter, right? But <laughs> obviously the iPhone is not for swatting flies. It's for making phone calls, right? And in the same way, Like, if we don't understand God's design for our lives, if we don't understand that he's designed us to live in a certain way, which is primarily to love him and obey him in all that he asks, that's the the design for humanity. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. It means to to reflect the reality of God, his his characteristics, his, his heart, his love, Um, all these different things. It means to reflect that to the world so that we point the world to the reality of God. That's what it means to be an image bearer. And so that's the design. 
And Jesus knows that if we live according to that design, it produces a joy that is unshakable. It produces a joy that cannot be taken away. But because of the sin in our hearts, we oftentimes don't realize that living according according to God's design is what actually produces joy. And so this idea of like God wants us to be joyful, like joy is not something that's a secondary thing. It's actually something that the Holy Spirit produces. If you read in Galatians 5, it's the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then the next one is joy. So we as Christians should be marked by joy. We should be a happy people, a joyful people, because we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been given every good and perfect gift from our heavenly Father. And so my question for us is, as we're thinking about this, have you seen very much joy in your life recently? Would you classify yourself as a joyful person? Because joy is not something that's secondary. It's something that God produces in us as we meditate, as we think about all of the blessings that we've been given by our Heavenly Father. And if you want a, a list of those blessings, just read Ephesians 1. It's, it's amazing. But do you find joy? Do you rejoice when you think about the gospel? When you think about the fact that Jesus so loved you that he gave his life for you. Because that type of love, when we begin to comprehend that, when it becomes uh, real to us, it produces joy. Because we, we realize that it's a love that we have never experienced from anyone. No one has ever loved us as deeply as Jesus. So, the... The first way that disciples are different is that they are marked by the joy of Jesus. So the second way that disciples are different is this, is that a disciple is different than the world because he or she is marked or is changed, excuse me, changed by the word of Jesus. Look with me at verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word. And then drop down to verse 17, where he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then drop down once more, verse 19, where he says, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So another distinctive of being a disciple is that we are changed by the word of Jesus. We're changed by the word of Jesus. Of Jesus. To give you an example of the, the type of change, this is a permanent change, okay? So every once in a while, I'll look at my arms and I'll see all of the tattoos and stuff, and then I'll think, you know, that's never going back to the way that it was. And there, I, I don't really have any regrets because I like tattoos, but I just think to myself, you know, that's, that's permanent. Like, that's never going away, right? That's the type of change that Jesus produces, that his word produces in the lives of believers. And the way that we are changed is through the word, but it's not as though 
um, you can't be changed by something that you're not coming into contact with. So if you are regularly coming into contact with the word of God, it begins to reshape the way that you think. You begin to think in Bible categories, right? Um, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, he says that we should be renewed in, the, in our minds, right? And the way that God changes our minds is by reading the Bible, is by and but first and foremost, it's not just like we come to the come to the Bible and we read it like a textbook. No, we read it as though it is the very authoritative communication from God, where God it is it is the ultimate standard of truth. And so, if we have that attitude when we come to the Word of God, we say it, it will obviously and at certain times it will conflict with our thoughts and feelings and desires. The word of God will convict us. And it's when we're faced with something in scripture that is opposed to, a, to the way that we're living or a, a way that we're thinking that we have to, we kind of come to a crossroads and we say, I'm either gonna come under the authority of the word of God and I'm gonna change my mind or I'm gonna dig in deeper into rebellion and I'm not gonna allow the word of God to change the way that I think. But we as disciples, we have the, the very words of God in the scriptures. And so we come to the word of God and we say, Father, this word is yours. These scriptures are your very words. I recognize my brokenness and my inability to, to live uh, the way that you want me to live. And so I want to, I want to repent of all the ways that I am not living according to this this standard according to this word. And then we thank God that Jesus lived up to the standard that the Father has in our place. We don't just recognize our uh, broken and sinful state. We do recognize it, but we also rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus paid it all, that Jesus offered perfect obedience in our place. And so my question is, how often are you coming into contact with the scriptures? How often are you coming to them and asking God to change the way that you think? Because the more that we dive into the scriptures, the more that we begin to study it and, and when we approach it with this attitude of, of submission, God will change us. We will be changed by the word of Jesus. So first one is that we are marked by the joy of Jesus. Second, a disciple is different than the world because he or she is changed by the word of Jesus. And third and finally, a disciple is different. All disciples are different in that they are united together to point the world to Jesus. Look with me at verses 21 and 23. 21, he says this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
And then this is the key phrase here, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then drop down to verse 23, and it says this, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So this idea of being united together. And then look at that next phrase. What does it say? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And so Jesus, he's not only praying uh, for that the disciples would be marked by joy, that they would be changed by his teaching, but he's also praying for a unity among the disciples with, a, with the end goal in mind of that the world would, would look in and see the unity in the church, see how well we love one another, and it would point them to Jesus. And so... When we think about this idea of, of unity and how it, it points people to Jesus, um, I'll, I'll give you a, an example uh, just from this last year of how the church has not really displayed unity. And as a result of that, hasn't really pointed people to Jesus. COVID. There's been this huge polarizing thing and you've got people on one side and people on the other who are unwilling to bear with one another, unwilling to have conversations, unwilling to, as it says in 1 Corinthians, believe the best about their brother or sister, unwilling to bear with one another. And it has been a shameful, disgusting witness to the world. We need to be unified even if we have different opinions. Now, Unity doesn't necessarily mean that you look like a bunch of stormtroopers and you're, you know, all dressed the same way and you talk the same way and you have weird, you know, numbers for names and all of that. But unity means that even if you have different opinions, you still have love and respect for another brother or sister in Christ. Even if you think the other brother or sister is weird, uh, you still love them. You still spend time with them, Right? That's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And when the, the watching world sees the way that you treat one another, sees the way that you treat your siblings, sees the way that you treat other Christians who are different than you, when they see that kind of unity, they're going to ask the question, what brings them together? What brings them together? And the answer is Jesus Christ and what he has done for each and every single one of us. That's what unifies people when I think about Christian unity, um, have you guys ever been like standing outside on a porch? This is probably a terrible example. But uh, have you ever been standing outside on a porch and you've seen a porch light and then all these moths are like gathering around and they're like, you know, trying to get at the light? Like individual, individuals coming together around this light, okay? That's a picture of Christian unity. We come together, we're trying to get at that light. We're trying to get at Jesus. We're trying to have a relationship with Jesus. And as we draw close to Jesus, we also draw close to one another. And we become unified around the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And so as we, as we think about this, the application for this and the action steps that we need to take is we need to begin to think about how can we be more unified with one another? How can we be unified in our families? How can we be unified in the church? 
How can we be spending time with other Christians in school, being together, being a, a witness together, pointing people to Jesus? Because that is exactly what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, that God has gathered all these different people and brought them into one group, one body, for the express purpose of the world knowing Jesus, knowing that the Father sent Jesus in a magnificent display of love to bring them back into a relationship with God. So a very practical thing is that you can choose to show love to your family, choose to show love to your Christian friends, choose to show love to people who have different opinions than you within the body of Christ. And as you act different like that, as you act different than the world, you're going to have people ask questions. And so, as we think about this idea of Christians are, are different in that they're marked by the joy of Jesus and changed by the word of Jesus and that they're united to point people to Jesus, we have to bring up the fact that the whole reason that any of us can be changed uh, to have his joy, to be transformed by his word, to be united together. The only reason that any of those things can happen is because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, came and humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and lived a perfect sinless life and died a criminal's death in our place so that McKenna could have joy so that she could be changed by the word of God and so that she could point other people to Jesus. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be a Christian? And I just want to finish by sharing this verse and then I'm going to mention these quick action steps. I know I'm cutting into our, our uh, group time. But look at verse 18. And this is, this is kind of the the charge that I want us to, to finish this series with. And Jesus says this, he's speaking to the Father and he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so in the same way that the Father sent the Son to proclaim the good news of the, uh, of the gospel, so now Jesus has returned to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we may go out in a similar way and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Let's pray, and then I'll talk about a couple